are listening to Claim Closure, the premier audio resource for workers' compensation claims in North Carolina. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Claim Closure. I'm your host, Brian Grozier, and we are going to delve into another specific defense that you may have at your disposal. Last time we talked about intoxication. And I mentioned at the end of the episode that we would talk about another one called willful misrepresentation. And so that's what we will talk about today. Not a whole lot to talk about on this particular defense, but I do want to get a little bit into the weeds on it, just so that you have an idea that if it does come across your desk, how you're able to utilize it. So let's look at the actual statute. Uh, It is under 9712.1. So it's got its own little subsection of a statute there that willful misrepresentation is a part of, and there's a reason for that, and I'll get into the history of where this statute came from when I talk about a case in a minute, but let's just read the statute itself. So 9712.1 is titled Willful Misrepresentation in Applying for Employment, and it states that no compensation shall be allowed under the Act for an injury by accident or occupational disease if the employer proves that, one, at the time of hire or in the course of entering into employment, two, at the time of receiving notice of the removal of conditions from a conditional offer of employment, or three, during the course of a post-offer medical examination, one of three things happens. So the first three I just mentioned are or. Right, So at the time of hire, or in the course of entering into employment. Two, at the time of receiving notice of the removal of conditions from a conditional offer of employment. Or three, during the course of a post-offer medical examination, one of these three things happens. One, the employee knowingly and willfully made a false representation as to the employee's physical condition. Two, The employer relied upon one or more false representations by the employee, and the reliance was a substantial factor in the employer's decision to hire the employee. And three, there was a causal connection between false representation by the employee and the injury or occupational disease. So the first three things that I listened or that I listed talks about the time that this happens, right? And that's an or. It can be one of those three things. It could be at the time of hire or in the course of entering into the employment. It could be at the time of receiving the notice of the removal of a condition from a conditional offer of employment. Or it could be during the course of a post-offer medical examination. Those first three factors are all or. It could be one of any of those three. And you're talking about the timing of when this misrepresentation happened. The final three are all required. So you need all three, and this is an affirmative defense, so you got to prove this on your end as the, as the employer. You have to have all three in order to have this defense. You can't just have two, you can't just have one. You have to have all three. And this is, it will break the, each individual element down, okay? So number one, the employee knowingly and willfully made a false representation as to the employee's physical condition. That is likely going to be more than just a mark on a piece of paper. Because if you just have a mark on a piece of paper where they checked marked none as it related to prior 
comp claims or none as it relates to prior back injuries or none as it relates to restrictions, even though that appears to be a misrepresentation, the statute requires that the employee knowingly and willfully made a false representation. So if you get to a hearing and the employee says, yeah, I just, I didn't read that close enough or yeah, I forgot that five years ago, I had injured my back, but it wasn't that big of a deal or, you know, whatever the excuse may be, you got to be able to show that there was a willingness and knowingness in terms of making that uh, false representation or that misrepresentation. So usually you need something a little bit more than just the mark on the piece of paper. You need something like, uh, you know, a certification from the employee signing off on that paperwork that everything is fair and accurate and re and, uh, and correct. Um, maybe even a follow-up interview uh, with the employee confirming uh, that they're capable of doing the job and that there aren't any limitations or anything like that, but something more than just that paper. I'm not saying the paper isn't sufficient enough. It might be by itself, but if you're on the defense and you have to prove that it was knowing and willful, just having a paper with a mark on it is going to be fairly easy for the claimant to testify around. Uh, to show that it was an accident or an oversight or what have you, okay? Doesn't mean that you can't prove it. It just helps to have more than just the mark on the paper. All right, number two, the employer relied upon one or more false representations by the employee and the reliance was a substantial factor in the employer's decision to hire the employee. This is where you need the testimony from the employer, all right? You need to show that we but for them marking that we would not have hired them right if they had marked if the if the employee had marked that they could only lift 20 pounds and the job requires 50 pounds we would have never hired that person right and and, and we have that question in there on purpose because the job requires 50 pounds of lifting and we want to make sure that they're physically capable of doing it. If it's a sedentary job, if they're working at a desk and the questionnaire asked if they could lift up to 50 pounds, if they had any restrictions and you know they were capable of lifting, let's say 20 pounds and they're only sitting at a desk, then it's not, uh, it's immaterial really. I mean, it, it's not going to be a substantial factor in terms of the decision to the hire the employee because they're not required to lift anything in the first place. They're working at a desk, right? So you need to talk with the employer before you make this defense. You need to talk with the employer and make sure that you have your ducks in a row as it relates to their reliance on these false representations. And then finally, third, there needs to be a causal connection between the false representation by the employee and the injury or the occupational disease. All right. So those are the requirements. And the third one I'm going to talk about with an actual case, and I'll get to that case in a minute, but those are the three. And again, this is an affirmative defense. So those are the three requirements that you have in order to make this affirmative defense at the commission. So let's talk about the case that really illustrates this statute. Um, and that is Purcell versus Friday staffing. It's a 2014 court of appeals case. And in this particular case, the claimant uh, had sustained a low back injury back in 1999, working for a different employer. All right. So working for the employer, stains an injury to the back, ultimately files it as a worker's compensation claim, ultimately gets assessed at maximum medical improvement, receives a 7% rating to the back, 
and receives permanent restrictions of no lifting greater than 20 pounds. About three years later, the claimant ends up settling the workers' comp claim in 2002 for $50,000 in that settlement. Attests that she has this condition, that it's progressive in nature, could worsen over time, permanent restrictions of 20 pounds, etc., etc. Ends up, claimant ends up working uh, for several employers after that settlement was reached in 2002. And here we are in 2010, eight years later, and the employee is applying for work at this staffing agency at uh, Friday Staffing. And Friday Staffing has a number of things that re they require their employees to or potential employees at least to complete prior to actually becoming an employee. And one of those is an essential functions questionnaire, and another one is a medical history questionnaire. And you see this often with employers where they do a post-offer pre-employment medical questionnaire or some sort of questionnaire. You know, they're saying, yeah, we'll offer you the job, but it's a conditional offer, right? You have to be able to pass this physical. You have to be able to pass this DOT physical. You have to be able to pass this medical examination, you know, whatever it may be, or you have to fill out this these uh, requirements because this is what the job requires. We got to make sure that you're physically capable of doing it before we actually bring you on to do it. So that's what was happening here. And in the essential functions questionnaire, the claimant uh, asserted that she would be able to carry and lift over 50 pounds and could sit and stand for extended period of times and could do frequent bending, stooping, you know, crouching, crawling, all these things that were required for the job. And in the past medical history questionnaire, she denied any prior injuries, denied ever filing a workers' comp claim, and denied having any back injury or issues. She certified on those questionnaires, she signed them and certified that the responses were truthful. And in fact, when she was uh, set up for a job that met these physical requirements, she again attested in the interview that she didn't have any limitations that would preclude her from completing the physical tasks of the job. So she gets the job and lo and behold, she gets hurt. Right, This job required more than 20 pounds of lifting. She worked two different jobs. One of them required up to 50 or over 50 pounds. Another one was routinely 20 to 25 pounds, both of which exceeded her permanent restrictions, which were assigned way back in 2002. And she injures her low back in the process. She files a workers' comp claim alleging a specific traumatic incident uh, occurred with her back. The defendants deny it on a Form 61. Uh, the deputy ends up uh, upholding the denial, so does the full commission, so plaintiff appeals to the Court of Appeals and makes the argument, uh, there's basically, she admits to the first two, okay, those first two factors that I talked about uh, under the statute in terms of what the defense has to prove, she admitted to those first two, it was really about the, the, the third one, so she admitted that she knowingly and willfully made a false representation as to the employee's physical condition. That's actually a pretty big deal. I mean, that's kind of hard to prove on the defendant's end, but she admitted to it. She admitted that the employer relied upon those false representations and that the reliance was a substantial factor in the decision to, re to hire her. The issue in this particular case stemmed around what was the causal connection between the false representation by the employee and the injury or the occupational disease. And so that's what this case was about. And in part of the review of this, the court decided to do a history lesson of their own and go back as to why this statute exists in the first place. And so I'm going to do the same thing for you. So this 
originated really in 2008 in a court of appeals case called Freeman versus J.L. Rothrock. And in that case, there was no 9712.1 at the time. There was no statutory scheme that discussed willful misrepresentation. So what the court did is they looked at Larson's, and I've talked about Larson's in the past. Larson's is a national kind of go-by as it relates to workers' compensation, and a lot of workers' compensation statutes are uh, basically uh, things that are listed or talked about or enumerated in Larson's. And there may be a little bit of modifications, but at the root of it, many statutes are premised upon what Larson's puts out. And that was essentially what happened here with the exception of there was no statute yet. So what the court did was the court decided to adopt the what Larson said about willful misrepresentation, which is verbatim at this point what 9712.1 is. But at the time, like I said, 9712.1 did not exist. And so they said this is basically, you know, common law, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why they applied it and went with it. Well, the dissent said, nah, you can't do that because there isn't a statute here in North Carolina that even allows for this to happen in the first place. You're just citing a, a book that's not statutory and therefore we're putting an onus on a claimant that doesn't exist from a statutory standpoint. And the Supreme Court agreed and ultimately reversed. And then quickly, the General Assembly here in North Carolina adopted the Larson's test as statutory. So they created 9712.1, which again is verbatim what Larson said and what the court in Freeman was trying to do. They made this statutory. And so this was this Purcell case was the first time that the Court of Appeals had a chance to address this statute and address what it actually means for causation. And what Purcell was trying to argue in this particular case was that the work incident uh, or lifting um, didn't cause, uh, you know, th this false representation that she made didn't cause the occupational disease. It simply um, worsened an already, you know, pre or, or it worsened a pre-existing condition or what have you is what the defense were arguing. And she was arguing, no, this is completely new. It's a completely new herniation and all of this stuff. So uh, she was arguing against uh, the causation aspect of it. And here's what the court said. The, the court basically looked at what Freeman, uh, the case that got reversed by the Court of Appeals, it looked at what Freeman was trying to do and what they said as it related to causation and applied that to the facts here. And so I'm just going to read straight from the case so you have an idea as to how the court uh, dealt with it. So in Freeman, the Court of Appeals determined that the requirement of a causal connection between the plaintiff's misrepresentations and his earlier back injury presented the issue of whether his undisclosed medical condition increased his risk of injury. We therefore hold that when requiring a causal con connection to satisfy the third element of 9712.1, the legislature intended that a defendant show that a plaintiff's undisclosed or misrepresented injury condition or occupational disease increased the risk of the subsequent injury or disease. And it went on to state in this particular case in Purcell that the plaintiff conceded and Dr. Harley's unchallenged expert medical testimony indicates 
that her prior back problems, which she concealed from defendant employer, increased the potential for her 2011 back injury if she violated her lifting restrictions. Nonetheless, plaintiff argues that because there was no evidence as to the exact parts being lifted while plaintiff worked with Continental, the commission could have concluded that plaintiff violated her lifting restrictions and thus there could be no causal connection between her prior and recent injuries. We disagree. And it went on to explain why they disagreed. And this is kind of a good analysis of what the court does when they're looking at a causation. So I'm going to read it and just so you have an idea. It says the commission found that plaintiff developed severe right-sided back pain and numbness on July 18th of 2011 as she was having to constantly twist and bend over to pick up trailer arms from the pallet. In addition, the commission found that the trailer arms weighed between 20 and 25 pounds, a weight in, ex- in excess of her permanent work restrictions. Although plaintiff argues that there was no evidence that she violated her work restrictions of lifting no more than 20 pounds, the commission's finding regarding the weight of the trailer arms was supported by plaintiff's own testimony that the trailer arms weighed about 20, maybe 25 pounds. The commission was entitled to find, based on plaintiff's testimony, that she was exceeding her work restrictions when she injured her back. That finding, in conjunction with Dr. Haley's unchallenged expert testimony that the plaintiff was at an increased risk of injury if she exceeded her work restrictions, supported the commission's conclusion that the causal connection existed between the false representation and the 2011 back injury. And therefore, we hold that the commission did not err in denying her claim for workers' compensation benefits. Now, here's a couple of things when it comes to that. First and foremost, it's key that it was the lifting beyond the permanent restrictions that caused the injury in the first place, okay? And so that in turn would mean that if she was lifting within the restrictions, let's say she had a back problem, okay? Let's say that she didn't disclose it. She falsely represented that she didn't have a back problem. She had permanent restrictions of no lifting over 20 pounds, but she was performing jobs that required her to lift 10 pounds, which is completely within her restrictions. She injures her low back. Now she misrepresented the back injury. It's possible that they wouldn't have hired her, but for, let's say, the job requires to lifting up to 30 pounds. By the time that she injured herself, she was lifting 10 pounds. Does the defense have the same argument? Probably not, because in that particular instance, the way that she injured herself was doing something that was actually within her restrictions, and therefore she wasn't at an increased risk from lifting 10 pounds of injuring herself because she wasn't lifting outside of her restrictions. Now, the other thing that comes up with misrepresentation and you know what I've always been told and frankly what I've always talked about with people when I do training is that it has to be with the body part um, that was, that, that was injured. So the body part that was injured has to match up with the body part that was misrepresented. But if you really look at the statute, the statute doesn't really say that. All right. And, and so follow me here for a little bit. The statute says that there was a causal connection between the false representation by the employee and the injury or the occupational disease. So it's possible, you know, that if you lifted your, uh, I can see this being an issue, that if you have, let's say like she did, 20-pound lifting restrictions as it related to her low back, and that the reason why she had that was because she could further injure herself if she lifted beyond 20 pounds, I don't necessarily think that entirely means 
that it's limited to the back in the sense that if you were lifting more than 20 pounds, not only can your back not handle that, but you're going to overcompensate because your back can't handle that and overcompensate and use your arms or legs or whatever differently than you otherwise would if you were capable of lifting more than 20 pounds. So I think in theory that if you had a incident where the person was lifting something that was heavier, let's say that she in this particular case was lifting something that was 25 pounds and tore her rotator cuff, if a doctor were to testify to say that because of the overcompensation by the limitation in her back, she put extra pressure onto her arm, which led to the rotator cuff tear. You may, I think, have an argument here because, again, it doesn't say in the actual statute that it has to be the same body part. It just says that there was a causal connection between the false representation by the employee and the injury or the occupational disease. I think you can make the causal connection because I think you can say, look, overcompensation for a limited back caused by medical testimony this rotator cuff injury or the knee to give out you know or, or whatever the body part is that's overcompensating because of the lifting restriction again something i haven't seen before i will say i have had a case i've had one case like this i think in my entire career that i can think of i may have had another one at one point but it was one that fit this to a t and i think i talked about it way back when i did the deny the form 61 episode but it was a case that was a landscaper out of Charlotte, and the, it was very similar to this per Purcell case. The guy had a prior workers' comp claim, had permanent 25-pound lifting restrictions, uh, settled that workers' comp ca case, ended up getting a job with my insured, um, working landscaping, denied, did one of these post-offer pre-employment medical questionnaires, denied having a prior workers' comp claim, which was false, denied having any prior back injuries, which was false, denied having any type of permanent restrictions, which was false, goes and works for the landscaper and, of course, is lifting more than 25 pounds and, lo and behold, injures his back. And so we argued 97.12.1. We never were able to even get to the court because it was blatantly obvious that he was going to lose. And we ended up settling the case for a nominal amount and closing it out. But that was a strong case in our favor of utilizing the statute the way that it's meant to be used. And so it's not something, again, I've only used it in, that I can think of. I've only used it once in 15 years. If you look up the annotations under the statute, the Purcell case is the only case that's under this particular statute, whereas most statutes have you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 cases listed underneath it that, that have uh, applied the statute. This only has one, and it took place in 2014, so almost a decade ago. So it's not a defense that comes up all that often, but it certainly is something that you can utilize, especially uh, if you have a situation where the insured did have some sort of questionnaire, did have some sort of uh, evaluation and there was a denial of any prior issues or prior limitations, and you run your ISO report, and you say, oh, wait a second, there was a prior workers' comp case, and it did involve his back. And then you look that up, and you find out what the permanent restrictions were. You go through the discovery process and find that stuff out. You may have a case. But again, this is something that you need to do very early on, because you've got 90 days to investigate your file. And to find this out six months later, after you've already accepted the case and are paying everything, well, you're out of luck, right? Because you've already accepted the case, you had the opportunity to investigate it, you didn't do it, and 
you know, you're stuck with it now. Uh, whereas if you did investigate the, the case and you did look, run the ISO report and you did talk to the employer and see if there was a evaluation or a questionnaire or something where there was an attestation as to the claimant's physical condition and capabilities and prior history, if you find all that stuff out in the 90 days, you have absolutely every right to file your Form 61 if you find that there was a misrepresentation. But the onus is on you as the carrier to do the legwork, and you've got 90 days to do it from the date of notice. And I talked about that in detail under the Form 63. This is a tough defense to apply because you really have to investigate it thoroughly first in order to know that you even have it at your disposal. So be proactive on your files. One of the first things that you should probably do, because uh, this could be a compensable case, right? It could be a, on the face of it. It could be compensable. It's a lifting incident. There was an accident or what have you. But the accident itself, if, if there was a slip and fall and everything else, that's probably going to be much harder to use this statute. Because once again, you have that causal connection problem where, you know, was there an increased risk of sustaining that injury? Well, from a lifting incident, yes, that seems quite obvious. If the claimant slipped and fell off of a you know a platform or off of a ladder, it probably doesn't matter if they had a pre-existing problem or not. They would have injured themselves regardless based off of that accident, right? And so that's something that is a little bit harder to prove. You still may be able to, but it's a little bit harder to do so for sure. This is going to come up more often than not in some sort of a lifting incident where there were pre-existing lifting restrictions, you need to find out what those pre-existing lifting restrictions are and that they even existed in the first place. And that's part of your initial investigation into the file. So when you talk with the insureds, make sure that you ask, even if it's on, on its face, it appears to be a compensable case. Make sure that you ask, was there any type of pre-employment uh, questionnaire, evaluation, anything like that to know what the claimant's base level of capabilities were at the time of employment and what the claimant said that they, he or she was capable of doing. So again, not a defense that you utilize all that often, but it is something that should be on your radar. It is something that can be denied. Uh, you could avoid fusion surgery. You could avoid a discectomy. You could avoid prolonged pain management if you do your job up front and see if this defense exists. So I wanted to dedicate an episode to it so that you had the opportunity to know exactly what it is and what you have to do in order to assert it and go from there. So we will likely uh, be talking about another defense in the next episode, unless the Court of Appeals comes out with a case uh, to discuss on the workers' comp side. But until that time, this has been Claim Closure. <laughs>